Our New Testament reading this morning comes from 1 Peter 4 and 5. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's suffering so that yet you also may be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves. Keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him, steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, friends. Let's uh, join in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask this morning that as we think about these words uh, from Peter's letter, that you would help us to know how they apply to our lives in this particular moment of our own suffering and our own experience of trials, whether it be the pandemic or other things that we're dealing with in life, and certainly mindful that Christians throughout the world suffer in far greater ways. So would you be with us, Father, Son, and Spirit, and lead us in understanding how we might be a people of faith. In Jesus' name, uh, amen. So uh, this morning, the church throughout the world celebrates or remembers the ascension of Jesus. And that's that moment when he vanishes into the heavens, into the space of God's world, we could sometimes say. Uh, Acts, uh, Luke describes rather in Acts the scene beautifully. And just imagine it for a moment. We didn't read about it this morning, but imagine it in your minds. The disciples are there with Jesus and uh, he has been speaking to them of, of their calling and his life with them. And they're curious about the fullness of the coming kingdom of God, because when they look around themselves, they see nothing about their world changed. Everything is as it was before. The Romans are still in power. People still die of sickness. Uh, injustices of all types abound. Inequalities are very real. And so they just simply want to know, is it now or is it later that your kingdom comes? Jesus says, um, somewhat perhaps disappointingly, it's not for you to know the time. Um, and that feels disappointing because we all instinctively want to know the time. You've been on trips with your parents or on other journeys in which you've wondered, are we there yet? And that was simply the wondering of the disciples in that particular moment. But Jesus does say that you will receive the Holy Spirit and you will become witnesses throughout the world of this truth of what God has done in the person of Jesus. And then Jesus vanishes out of view. And the disciples, just as we might have done as well, were we in their shoes, stand peering into the space where Jesus once stood among them. 
and the angelic onlookers uh, look on them and say, stop peering into the empty air, stop looking into the sky, wait for the Spirit of God. What strikes me about this moment of thinking about the ascension in our particular context is just this, that that moment of confusion is still our moment of confusion, the uncertainty. We live in a world that is torn very much. We experience the brokenness of the world, but we also experience and know the reality of the reanimation of the people of God by the Spirit of God who seeks to help us to embody the hope of Jesus in very, very hard places. First Peter takes us into those stories of the early church as they tried to live out and as Peter was trying to help them think about what it meant for them to embody hope in their everyday worlds. And I think it's helped us as we've read through these chapters to think about how we embody hope as the people of God, even in the midst of disappointments and loss related to the pandemic or other kinds of struggles that are common to our own lives. So Peter says in these first sentences, don't be surprised by your experiences of suffering as if they were some brand new thing. It's very much the same old thing, the same old story that continues to be told and that we continue to experience. But Peter seems to suggest, I think, instead of being surprised by suffering as if it's a new thing, what if you were to take your experiences of these sufferings, these ordinary sufferings, and bring them to your relationship with Jesus and rethink what does it mean to be in these circumstances with Jesus rather than alone, with brothers and sisters rather than alone, mindful of all that God has done in the person of Jesus and all that he promises he will finish. Peter believed that it was possible to rejoice when we suffer, not because suffering is good or even desirable or anything that we should rejoice in, but rather we rejoice because of where Jesus is. He is with us in our suffering. Maybe a little illustration from my own life uh, might help you. Uh, I'll offer it if it does. So last week, um, really a couple weeks ago, I guess, I experienced in the smallest of ways a sense of discontentment. I was in a conversation with some, with some other folks, and I, in the midst of that conversation, I could just discern myself feeling discontent with where I was, with what I had, with who I was, and, not, uh, and, and so almost feeling envious. And as I got off the, off the call, I was trying to understand, you know, what's going on in my heart? Why am I feeling so discontent all of a sudden, and why am I envious of something and uh, of someone else and something that I don't have? Why am I narrowing the focus of my life on this small thing? I tried to understand my heart and my desires. I confessed to God. I, I talked to God about it. I did all the spiritual things that you should do. I later went on a walk with Stacy, and I was just telling her the discontentment that I felt in this conversation and shared with her about my envy experience. And about a week later, I was reading something that the psychologist and spiritual director David Benner writes in a little book that he has on desiring God's will in which he talks about what does it mean to live a life that's ordered by the will of God and seeking his kingdom rather than the will of self and seeking the kingdom of self. Listen to what he writes about the cross. He says, taking up my cross is accepting whatever affliction I experience, no matter how great or small. 
and inviting Christ to walk alongside me as I carry it. It is meeting the suffering Savior in the midst of my own suffering, allowing myself to be touched by His grace. Walking this sacred way of the cross allows me to participate in Christ's suffering. It puts my suffering into perspective, and it gives it meaning because the end of the way of the cross is resurrection. Later, when I process this further with a person that I meet with for spiritual direction, I just became aware that that one incident of discontentment and envy was connected to many other smaller incidences of discontentment, just small places in my life where I think, oh, I wish things were different. I wish this were happening rather than that. In in those moments, beginning to discover that Jesus invites me to recognize that he is with me. And so I simply started consenting to his presence, that he wasn't far off or ignorant of what I was going through through, and any small sacrifice that I've made to live in a certain kind of way or whatever was something that I now need to begin to reframe and understand how Jesus was with me. And rejoicing is not focused on the suffering and the loss per se, but rather on the nearness of Jesus in our suffering. So what's interesting is that nothing changed about my life. I didn't get the things that I wanted. I didn't get any of that other stuff that I seemed envious about, except this thing did change. I became more aware of ways in which Jesus was near me rather than far. The rest of this particular text, I think, invites us to keep circling back to this practice of the awareness of Jesus' presence. As we circle back over and over again to the story of Jesus in the world and in our own lives, through these simple practices of humility, resistance, and hope. Let's think about with them briefly with me. So humility in verses 6 and 7, Peter, uh, Peter's first readers, if we'll just remember that, right, we've said on a number of occasions that they were almost certainly individuals that lived in humble circumstances, at least circumstances that we would describe as undesirable. Um, they lived in a construct of power and society and culture in which the wives that would have been a part of this household, uh, this community of faith, lived inside of the Roman household in which they were denied rights and equality and all kinds of opportunity for advancement and change. There were slaves also in this particular early Christian community. There were the poor in this early Christian community. And each of these persons lacked the kind of power that a few other people in the community might have actually had to produce obvious change in their world. But to each of the members of the household of God, Peter says, humble yourself beneath God's mighty hand that he might exalt you. Think with me for just a moment of how we typically relate to that last bit of the phrase, that he may exalt you. Very often I find myself wondering, or at least hoping, that what God desires to exalt is to undo the circumstance of brokenness, that he, in other words, he will bring about a remedy to my circumstance and I'll actually get what I want. I'll actually begin to experience whatever the good that I desire. But Peter is a thinking like that as he urges us to think this way about humbling ourselves beneath God's hand and waiting for him to exalt us, Peter is almost certainly referencing the pattern of Jesus' own life. And he's mapping it onto my life and onto your life. What did Jesus do? 
If you think back to Philippians chapter 2, Paul describes Jesus as one who is God but does not grasp at his godness, his identity as godness, but he humbles himself and he takes the form of a servant in human life. And he becomes a servant who lives at the margins of society and lives unto death itself or into death itself. He's buried in his death. But God raised him up, exalts him, and gives him the highest name. To humble ourselves beneath God's mighty hand is to bring our own self-awareness of our own story, our identity efforts beneath the story of Jesus as we seek to live and love as he lived and loved inside of our world. Thomas Merton described humility as something that consists in um, rather being the person that you actually are. Now that conflicts with the way we sometimes think of humility, right? Very often in our world, we think about humility as um, denying ourselves or thinking less about ourselves. We think of humility in terms of uh, that might require us to even be a little disingenuous about ourselves, about our wealth, about our gifts, about our talents, about our education, about our experiences, about things that we know. But Merton urges us to not think of humility that way, but rather to think of it as being exactly who you are. What does that mean for us as followers of Jesus? It means that we have to begin with and include the truth of who God says that we are. And when you think about the story of Jesus and what he reveals to us about our life with God, it is just very, very simply this, that at base, in the very start of things, you are a beloved child of God. He has put his love upon you. You need to do nothing to receive that love. You need to do nothing to earn that love. It is simply the gracious gift of God, our Heavenly Father. His loving presence is the beginning of our truest expression of ourselves. Not all the other things that have happened to us in our lives, whether they're good or bad. Not all the things that we do inside of our lives to prop up a sense of self, but simply that we are loved by God. What would it look like in the midst of the pandemic to hold on to that truth in the relationships that you have inside of your household or to hold on to that truth when you're just sick and tired of the four walls of your house? What would it look like for you in your own context of suffering, whatever it is, to begin with the simple fact that you are a beloved child of God? It's interesting, Peter doesn't assume suffering is easy. In fact, in this particular text, I think he assumes that it's anxiety producing because suffering pushes us to the very edges of ourselves. And so what does Peter say to do with that anxiety when it erupts in our lives? He says, bring it to God's mighty hand, right? Because he cares for you. He cares about you. Bring it to him the way that you might share your story or some event in your life with a trusted friend or someone that you love or someone that you consider to be a safe person that you can just be raw with. The way I might have talked to Stacy that afternoon about my experience of discontentment and envy in that earlier conversation that I'd had. God wants you, wants me to relate to him in that way, to come to him in that way. He longs to meet us in all of these spaces as suffering, as someone who cares. 
Peter also urges us to this practice of, res- of resistance, I think, in verses 8 and 9. He specifically begins by reminding us to remember, or rather to be alert and disciplined and understand that our lives unfold inside of spiritual conflict. Now, that's hard for us because very often we think of our lives as simply unfolding in the spaces of human behavior. We're not aware of anything behind the scenes that may be going on, but here, Peter wants us to be aware that there is an evil personality at work inside the world, and Scripture speaks of that personality as the devil, whom here Peter likens as a lion that's on the prowl for food. Evil lurks in our stuckness and our caughtness and seeks to sort of hold us in these spaces of systemic injustice and the practice of everyday injustice or envy. All of these ways in which we find ourselves in humanity and the institutions we have produced find themselves stuck in powerful addiction to selfishness. So Peter says, be aware of that battle, but resist the devil and he will flee. Now, this is a really interesting thing to me because remember the people that Peter is writing to. They're the wives inside of these Roman constructs of the home. They're the slaves inside of an economic construct of oppression. And they're the poor who feel stuck and no way to move out of poverty. In other words, these are all individuals mostly that would likely see themselves as victims of their circumstances. But what Peter reminds them and reminds us is that we have real agency in the world because Christ has set us free. We have an agency to love inside of whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, in ways that are self-giving in the same way that Jesus's love was self-giving. So rather in a point of suffering or difficulty or in this moment of pandemic, rather than seeking to sort of grasp at power and control our circumstances because we have resources and we have the ability to study and understand things, or rather than seeking to escape the pain of suffering through more withdrawal or just sort of numbing ourselves to death through whatever your preferred addiction is, whether it's drink or food or gossip or conversation or being with a friend again, we have the power to live as Jesus lived in a vulnerable expression of love in the middle of this world. So for me, that means something like the next time in a conversation, I'm in a conversation with the friend in which I experience this expression of this experience rather of discontentment and even those arising feelings of envy instead of being there as an enviable person or instead of being there only thinking about that which I don't have or which I am not, my not enoughness, I am instead in that conversation in a vulnerable love that allows me to know that Jesus is with me and with my friend, and together we can have an honest conversation. Peter reminds us that in these struggles, we're not alone, but they unfold in the context of the body of Christ. We're family. There are brothers and sisters throughout the world that also go through suffering. And that's helpful for any of us that in our own moment of suffering, that we're likely to think that there's something unique and special about us, that we are the only ones experiencing the world in this way at this time. Peter says, no, this is true of all Christians everywhere because we live in this torn world of brokenness and yet embodiment 
by the Spirit and filling by the Spirit. We have a taste of God's glorious future, but we all know, we know all too much truer, right? The lack, the gaps. The final thing that Peter does here, I think, is he brings us back to this horizon of our hope. Remember at the very start of 1 Peter, Peter spoke of our inheritance that's kept and secured in heaven. He speaks of it as being an imperishable uh, inheritance. It's kept. It's certain. In other words, your future, your future is not um, fragile. It's, it's absolutely secured, Peter seems to be saying, and that enables us to live this life of risk, living and loving the way Jesus lived in love. So here, yes, while our lives are playing out against a backdrop of spiritual conflict that's oh so real, the most important reality in that story is that the world is the space in which Jesus earned victory. His power, his glory are forever, and our lives have been brought up and caught up into this glorious story that God is telling. So Peter reminds his reader as he closes out the letter, God will finish telling the story of our lives. May God help us to live inside the beauty of the story of Christ as we live in contexts of suffering that aren't surprising but are so real. May he give us grace to remember his presence with us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask this morning that as we think on these words and what they mean in the context of our lives, just reflecting back on our time of confessing our sin just earlier, just moments ago, and we looked into some of those gaps in our lives where there was distance between us and you, where we were sort of falling back into the constructs of this world and all of its brokenness. Would you help us to remember the presence of Jesus would you help us to remember his love, that we, Lord, would love you, that we would live by faith in the midst of a pandemic, and in the midst of all of the ways in which we're currently experiencing suffering. Meet us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we are reintroducing the practice of offering into our service. It's always been at the tail end of our service. It's there, the information. But we felt a conviction that we needed to bring it back into the midst of our service. And so this morning, we'll take just a brief few moments with a musical interlude that Bethany will play. And it's a time for us to offer our lives, our hearts to God, to think about those things that God is teaching us as we've thought about his word together, or we've confessed our sins together or we've been singing, and also a time for us to give. If you'd like to participate in the needs of our communities of Liberty Church and City Church, there are ways to do so. There's information in the bulletin that would allow you to give online if you desire so. So let's take some time in a few moments to reflect on all that God is doing in our lives and our world.